in the following program or report, there are scenes that some may find distressing from the start. I'm sure that almost everyone here has heard something like this or similar prior to watching a program on television, whether it be a drama, a documentary, or even a news bulletin. Such words act as a warning to the effect that what will follow might cause upset, might prove concerning, might be something that the viewer would rather not see. If Judges 15, which I invite you to turn to now, were being televised today, I could well imagine that such a precursor would be deemed necessary and would be probably of some length. I'll leave it to yourself to decide what such a warning might contain. Those things that feature in Judges 15, which perhaps you would rather weren't there. However, suffice to say that even with a warning being given at the start, were Judges 15 to be broadcast by the BBC, it would be no surprise if, there were, if the switchboard were jammed by irate callers with cruelty to animals and vicious violence beyond the lips of many. Even if you were a Christian broadcaster, Judges 15 would probably not be what you would want to lead with. But if we believe God's word, if we believe 2 Timothy 3 and 16, then we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful or profitable, as some translations have it, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of the Bible is useful. All of the Bible is profitable. The dull bits, the gory bits, the racy bits, the severe bits. And we are to come to Scripture with that expectation. Not least because it guards us against worshipping God only as we think of Him to be, rather than the God the Bible reveals Him to be. So, what is useful? What is profitable in Judges 15. What does it speak of? It speaks of the certainty of God's salvation, the faithlessness of God's people, and the sustaining of God's servant. So firstly, the certainty of God's salvation. On a pleasant summer morning in Timna, the man of the house is relaxing over a coffee and the Gaza Gazette. All is quiet but not for long. There's a knock at the door. And there stands Samson with a young goat under his arm in lieu of flowers and a twinkle in his eye. He's in the mood for love. He tells his wife's father he wants to go to the bedroom to make up. His father-in-law, as was, probably feels his stress levels spiking almost immediately. He knows from previous experience what Samson is capable of. He knows the mayhem that follows in his wake. But even pagan Philistines have some standards. 
No, Samson couldn't go to bed with his daughter. You see, he'd married her to Samson's best friend. Samson had seemed so angry that he just didn't think he would come back. However, her younger sister, a much better looker, is certainly available. With a furious look and seething in anger, Samson departs. And once again, the mayhem already alluded to and recorded in Judges 14 begins again. This may seem a long way down from such a lofty thing as God's salvation. It might seem so far away that you're struggling to see any connection whatsoever. But this mayhem is part of a pattern that occurs throughout Judges 14 to 16. As chapter 14 opens, Samson tells his horrified parents that he wants a Philistine wife. But as 14 and 4 tells us, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. God's people, Israel, were subject to the Philistines. God wanted to bring them out from under that. He wanted to save them. And so in the midst of chaotic circumstances, God's purposes of salvation begin to be worked out. Time after time, Samson is brought into conflict with the Philistines. This escalating until the final cataclysmic events of Judges 16. I see again, in the midst of chaotic circumstances, the deadly pagan grip of the Philistines on God's people Israel is steadily being loosened as God provokes confrontation between Samson and the Philistines. In Judges 14, the Philistines win the wager between them and Samson by pressurizing his wife to reveal the secret of Samson's riddle. The Philistines act, Samson reacts. And the slaughter of 30 Philistines in Eshkelon ensues. Now in Judges 15, having suffered another Philistine rebuff, Samson takes to the fields and his foxy antics hit the Philistines' wheat, olive and grape crop where it hurts. Now even factoring in the culture of the day, which was rude and crude, we may consider this bizarre exploit cruel, difficult to understand. But in Scripture, it is part of the Lord's resolve to confront the Philistines in an ongoing way in order that his people might be saved. Samson may think that his burning of the Philistine fields is a one-off retaliation. But the Lord knows very well that on the contrary, this will lead to an escalation in the conflict. And sure enough, the Philistines literally return fire. They burn Samson's wife and her father to death. Samson takes this as a personal affront and responds with another vicious attack before running for cover to a cave at the Rock of Etam. Salvation being worked out in the midst of slaughter. In the midst of events which, if we were living through them, 
would be difficult, if not impossible, to discern any plan, any sense, any pattern in. A pattern, I would suggest, that shouldn't really, and sadly, surprise us. As we contemplate the fallenness, the brokenness, the sinfulness of our world, a world in which plan or pattern or sense often seem difficult, if not impossible to discern, we should not be surprised at the way the world works. A world in which plan or pattern or sense often seem difficult, if not impossible to discern with all the attendant heartache, sorrow, and anguish that that brings us. Which, to repeat a phrase I used last week when I was praying, makes slogging along in the path of righteousness no easy task. But while in no way minimizing the daily difficulties this may bring, when we look at the cross, this is the pattern we see. We see salvation being worked out in the midst of slaughter. The slaughter of the innocent. The Lamb of God butchered for all. That salvation might come to all. Even in the face of the machinations of the powers that be. The certainty of God's salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The certainty of God's salvation in the midst of dark days when pattern, plan, or sense were difficult, if not impossible to discern. The certainty of God's salvation for all who believe, for all of faith. And that certainty is declared right at the beginning of Scripture. As God's promise comes to Abraham in Genesis 12. This was God's promise to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. A promise reiterated by Paul in these terms in Galatians 3 and verse 8. The Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. That's you and I. By faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Blessed through Abraham, from whom ultimately would come the Lord Jesus Christ. All who believe the gospel, the good news about Jesus, all who believe in him will be blessed. All who have faith. If there's anyone here who doubts that, consider Samuel. Sorry, consider Samson even. Consider Samson, a morally and emotionally weak person whose frailty is highlighted again and again in Judges 14 to 16. Samson is strong of body and weak of will. Samson is like the self-indulgent athlete who thrills on the field and appalls off it. Physically strong, but spiritually blind. He is not the most promising of raw material. 
when we turn to Hebrews 11 and 32, we read these words. I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, whose weakness was turned into strength. Samson is listed among the faithful. God is able to take the most unpromising of raw material, the most inferior of clay, and mold it into a vessel fit for his use. This is not to condone Samson's weakness or ours, but to say that no one is out of the reach of grace as far as God's salvation is concerned. No matter how unpromising we are as raw material, we can have the assurance of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. A love that is wide and long and high and deep. We can have that assurance through the love of Jesus Christ and know that in him we are new creations. Not yet what we should be, but no longer what we were. And with the promise of what we will be on resurrection day. The certainty of God's salvation. And not only when times are good. Come and see this, Helen shouted a few weeks back. And there against the blackest of clouds was a rainbow. The promise of God. The certainty of, of his salvation whether in the spiritual darkness of Judges 15 or the spiritual darkness of the present day. The certainty of God's salvation, even in the face of the faithlessness of God's people. A tragic portrait of God's people is painted in verses 9 to 13. In retaliation for Samson's vendetta against them, the Philistines threaten Lehi. Why? Say the men of Judah. Words that reveal how blurred the distinction between the people of the world and the people of God had become. Here is a people totally assimilated to the world. By this time in the book of Judges, we are spiritually scraping the bottom of the barrel. In Judges 1, the men of Judah had strenuously and spiritually contended against the Philistines, taking Gaza, Eshkelon, and Ekron, three of the five Philistine cities. Now they are anxious only to live and let live. Why have we come, say the Philistines, to take Samson prisoner, to do to him as he did to us, as verse 10 puts it. They want Samson dead. So a small army of Judah's men go down to have it out with Samson. 3,000 to 1, they weren't taking any chances. Though they feel their opening question should settle the matter. Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? They say to Samson. Such sad, sad words. Here are a people who have given in to captivity. 
who can no longer envision anything beyond the status quo. People who see deliverance, salvation, as a threat to peace. Who look upon the enemies of the living God as their rightful rulers. Here is Israel depicted as a people who have faithlessly forsaken their God. But who would not think of being faithless to the Philistines? Don't you realize the reality of the situation, Samson, they say? What do you think you're doing? They see Samson is fighting against them rather than the Philistines. What have you done to us, they say in verse 11? Don't you realize that your irresponsible actions are putting us in danger? You could even imagine a spokesman from Judah appearing on the Philistine equivalent of Newsnight to read a statement condemning Samson's behavior and distancing themselves from it. But they even go further than this. They blurt out their mission to Samson. They've come to bind him and hand him over to the Philistines. Samson offers no resistance. He only extracts a promise from them that they will not kill him themselves. Perish the thought, Samson. We don't want to kill you. Of course we don't. We just want to tie you up and hand you over to the tender mercies of the Philistines for them to kill you. They regard the Philistines as their rulers. They no longer see living freely with God as their ruler, as a possibility. They are content to let God's enemies hold sway. It is a dark, dark day in the history of God's people. And it carries with it a warning in our day. We, of course, are under a different covenant. A different covenant with God. The new covenant made possible by the broken body and shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He who, when an Aram gang came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, told Peter to put up his sword. But this notwithstanding, the consistent testimony of Scripture is that we, as God's people, are called to a war. Followers of Jesus are called to a war. Yes, a spiritual one, but still a war, a spiritual warfare. That's why we have passages like Ephesians 6 and verses 10 to 20, calling us to put on the full armor of God. Be strong in the Lord, says Paul, at the, as this passage in Ephesians begins. Are we? Are we strong in the Lord? Do we consciously put on the armor of God, knowing we are involved in a daily battle? Or do we leave it rusting in the corner? having lost sight of the biblical reality that we are involved in a battle to the death. Belt of truth, check. Breastplate of righteousness, check. Boots of the gospel, check. Shield of faith, check. Helmet of salvation, check. Sword of the spirit, check. Is this our attitude as we go forth into the world. Do we check that we're equipped? 
Are we fighting the fight? Are we running the race? Are we keeping the faith? Recognizing that hostilities will always pertain between the Christian and the world. Recognizing that we are called not to negotiate with things that are not of God, things that are sinful and evil, but to wage war on them. Wage war on sin, putting it to death within and without. Yes, in terms of contending with sin without, we are to do so, evidencing the love and grace shown by Jesus. But as we do that, we've also to remember that the Lord Jesus was implacably opposed to sin and Satan. We have to have soft hearts as we engage with the world. But hard heads. We have to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ was implacably opposed to sin and Satan. We are to remember that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, as 1 John 3 and verse 8 tells us. The faithlessness of God's people in Judges 15 is to jolt us into the realization that there is no such thing as the harmonious coexistence of church and the world. There is no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. The faithlessness of God's people, the sustaining of God's servant. With shouts of glee, the Philistines descend on Samson. They, unlike Israel, know their enemy. They know antagonism when they see it. To them, Samson represented the Israel of old, the Lord's people, between whom and the Philistines and all such, there would always be enmity. God had declared it so in Genesis 3. And the Philistines weren't wrong. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson in power, enabling him to snap the ropes that had bound him as if they were charred flax. Samson picks up the jawbone of an ass, and by the end of the battle, the battle of Jawbone Hill, there are piles of Philistines all around, with Samson uttering this grim put-down, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them, with a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Samson is now acting in the power of the Spirit, the one through whom God would save Israel. In him, the certainty of God's salvation is pointed to. Yet at the same time, the stories so far identify Samson with Israel's sin, their faithlessness, a Nazarite of God, 
under a vow to distance himself from forbidden things. Samson didn't live that way. Even the very weapon he uses points to this. A fresh jawbone of a donkey speaks of it coming from a carcass, a no-go area for a Nazarite. From start to finish, Samson is presented as a flawed figure, a man unable to live as God intended, a man who left on his own is helpless, unable to affect the necessary changes in his life. A man who, unless sustained by God, is without hope. That's the picture we're presented with as judges. Fifteen closes. We find Samson in a situation he's never found himself in before. One with which he cannot cope. He's so weakened by thirst that he cries out to the Lord God, surely, significantly, This is the first time we read of Samson explicitly seeking God's help. This is the first time that Samson cries out to the Lord. Surely significant. A signpost to all of us that help is there. A prompt from the Spirit to each of us to seek such help, to look to God in prayer, as Samson does. He cries. He cries out. You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the the uncircumcised? Here is Samson, dependent on the Lord God, There is nothing of the self-sufficient Samson who has thus far stormed through these chapters of Judges. Now he acknowledges who has given the victory. Now he knows his weakness. Now he knows his need. No matter his attributes. Without God, he's lost. And in that realization, he cries out to God. A cry from the heart. A cry that God hears. For he is the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. The God who hears Samson, his servant, hears his cry and sustains. This is the God the Bible presents us with. The God whose love in Jesus is wide and long and high and deep. The God who sustains his servants. This does not mean that we are immune from the sorrows of life, the heartaches that provoke hard questions when things don't work out as we had hoped, as we had prayed they would. But our God is the God who sustains. In response to Samson's cry, God opened up 
the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. Samson drinks and is strengthened, sustained by the water that God provides. Water from the rock that calls to mind God's provision for his people Israel on their wilderness journey to the promised land. Water from the rock that for the believer carries echoes of the water from the rock that is Jesus Christ, the water of life, living water, welling up to eternal life, as John 4 and 14 says. Sustaining life, not just in time, but in eternity. As the chapter closes, Ramath Lehi, Jawbone Hill, where Samson triumph fades into the background. The chapter closes with another name, En Hakor, which, as the margin tells us, means collar spring. And we're told in verse 17, it is still there. Still there in Lehi. Still there in Jesus Christ. Still there for all who call have you called? Have you called to God? Called to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, the water of life, the living water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life for all who call in faith. Jesus Christ, the certainty of God's salvation, even in the face of the faithlessness of God's people sustaining God's servant in time and eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Your God, the Lord. The maker of heaven and earth. Your word tells us Lord, that you will not let our foot slip. We thank you for the certainty of your salvation in Jesus Christ. And as followers of him, we come. We come to pray. We come to seek your face. To thank you for all that you are and pray into a world that is not as you would have it. We pray, Father, for your people in Ukraine, for those we can put our face to because they have visited us here, asking that your hand of protection would be upon them and the rest of the populace. We pray into this situation, Father. We pray in the words of the psalmist that you would confuse the wicked, scatter nations who delight in war, let their intrigues be their downfall. And as we remember that connection with Ukraine, and Scripture Union, Open Bible in Ukraine. So we remember, Father, those Scripture Union events, those holidays that have started, 
We give you thanks for each one of them. We give you thanks, Father, for the message of the gospel, for the certainty of God's salvation in Jesus Christ that will be made known to young people over these coming days and weeks and months, asking that you would strengthen all of your servants who are involved in this work, that you would bless them mightily and use them powerfully. And we pray, Father, for ourselves here, that you would create in us a holy discontent that does not settle for the status quo, but strives against it. Father, may we fight the fight, may we run the race, may we keep the faith that your kingdom might come. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.